Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. And here we are in the summer months. In fact, we begin the summer solstice today, I believe. And we also are in the period of the liturgical calendar, which in the Western Church might be known as the ordinary time. And in the Eastern Churches, especially in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, it's known as the days after Pentecost or the Sundays after Pentecost. And this particular Sunday is the fourth Sunday after Pentecost in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. So we mark the Sundays of what the West would call ordinary times in terms of the days or Sundays after Pentecost. So it's a numerical kind of thing, (laughs) as opposed to just the word ordinary. Although when the Western Church uses the word ordinary, they don't mean ordinary as we mean it. And in fact, these days are never totally ordinary. And although they are in comparison to some of the high holy days we've come through in the cycles of Christmas and Lent and Pascha, but we also have the so-called ordinary time or the days after Pentecost perforated, I like to use that word, they kind of are perforated by certain very special days. We have one coming up this week, in fact. In the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we have the Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. Now, I'm going to draw upon one of our favorite old sources here at Light of the East, the liturgical year of the Byzantine Slavonic Rite by Father Basil Shadegi. You know, Father Basil Shadegi was one of those priests that I knew when I was a child and, and even into, oh, I think just about young adulthood. Then he passed away. But he was one of those priests, that was one of those original group of priests and clergy that had come over from Europe that helped to establish our church here in Europe from the place where it came, such as Slovakia, Ukraine, Hungary, that region. So I always look back on those priests. Uh, as I grew up, they were like my heroes, and they're really giants of our faith because of what they did, their sacrifice and their dedication. And remember, English was not their first language. This was not their culture, their country, but they came here as learned men, and they helped to establish this church here in a foreign country with a foreign language. 
And not only did they learn the language, but they were able to teach in our seminaries and to write books and to educate our people. They were among the first to help us move from our texts and our books and everything being in the Slavic languages. They helped us move into English so that people like me, growing up in America, would understand and inherit our faith. So a little bit about the Father Bejo Sheregis of our church. I think it's always important. In fact, it is the character of the church, a great gem of the church, to honor those who came before us, especially those who made great contributions, because it gives us a sense of continuity. It's not about just looking in the past and being old-fashioned or fuddy-duddy or stick in the mud. It's actually being very wise, being very rounded. You have a sense of where you came from, where you are now, where you need to go. It works as a as a whole. It's very integrated. So to look at those who came before us, upon whose shoulders we stand, I think is very important. So a little honor to Father Basil Sheregui. But this is what he writes about this feast of the birth of St. John the Baptist, which, as I mentioned, is one of those things that perforates the ordinary time of the liturgical calendar. He says that the commemoration of St. John's Nativity is one of the older, if not the oldest, feasts in honor of any saint found in either the Byzantine or Roman liturgies. Ordinarily, the church observes a day of a saint's death because that day marks his entrance into heaven. Have you ever wonder about that? How many saints do we actually observe their birthdays? I mean, we observe the birthday of Jesus Christ and, of course, his mother. But when do we observe the birthday of a saint? It's always when they die, when they're martyred or their bodies are found or their relics are translated or something. Okay, St. John is an exception to this rule because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. His nativity, therefore, is already a day of triumph. The feast of St. John's birth is mentioned in the sermons of St. Ambrose, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Augustine. In the 5th century, we even find churches erected in his honor. In the 7th century, St. Andrew of Crete composed beautiful hymns honoring the nativity of Christ's forerunner, and St. John Damascene in the 8th century enriched the liturgy with poetic stichitas and hymns in honor of St. John. Now that word stichita means verse, liturgical verse, one of the characteristic marks of the Eastern churches in the liturgy is we have what's called dogmatic hymnody, where we basically chant our theology, our song, our chant, our hymns is our theology. It's very poetic, very, very ingenious, uh, very very high liturgy and high literature, oftentimes, these, what they're called, stichitas. It's a word just that means verse. Okay, so Father Shadagi also says this, With the discovery of his relics, the cult of St. John the Baptist received a great impetus throughout the church in the 4th and 5th centuries. The historical records of the church contain much information concerning both the discovery and the translation of these relics, but they also give rise to insoluble difficulties, among others, the fact that there are now several relics of his head. In the Eastern liturgical calendar, they, they have the first, second, and third finding of the head of St. John the Baptist, and I don't think anyone knows where his head is right now. Okay, Father Shadegui also says this, The liturgy of the day repeatedly recalls St. John's miraculous birth. O prophet and forerunner of Christ's coming, we who devotedly honor you are unable to fittingly extol you, for through your glorious and noble birth your mother's childlessness was ended. Your father's tongue was released, and the incarnation of the Son of God was proclaimed in the world. The Kentuckian refers again to the miraculous character of his birth by saying, She who was previously barren gives birth to the forerunner of Christ. Now, this title, Forerunner, is part of what is behind the detail on the icon of St. John the Baptist, 
the detail of wings. Yes, he's painted oftentimes with wings because he is a messenger like an angel. He wasn't an angel per se. He was very, very special, of course. But he was a man who was a messenger, the forerunner. He foretold. He went ahead of Christ on earth and in heaven. It's interesting that the liturgical texts also say that as St. John the Baptist went ahead to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, for that salvific action, so too did St. John the Baptist die before Christ. And the liturgical texts say he did so so as to go down into Hades and prepare the souls there for the coming of Christ, just as he did on earth. And in fact, Christ would go down into Hades and what we call the harrowing of hell in the Eastern churches. And there's a magnificent icon of that with Christ descending into hell, breaking the bonds, the barriers, the walls of hell, which collapse in the form of our cross, all the hinges breaking and the locks flying apart. And he's grabbing Adam and Eve. It's a very, very dramatic scene. And he's grabbing them out of what looks like tombs or sarcophagi. Of course, they symbolize all of humanity. But he grabs Adam and Eve and pulls them up out of hell. He breaks the power of hell, and then he frees us. And that is celebrated on Great and Holy Saturday in the church in a very elaborate morning service called the Jerusalem Matin. So St. John goes ahead in Hades, ahead of Christ in Hades, to prepare the way to warn the souls there that Christ is coming, even as he did on earth. So St. John the Baptist, the forerunner, the messenger, his birth, which is special, unusual, to celebrate the birth in the liturgical calendar. This is coming up this week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. And so we encourage everyone to observe it in some way. If you can't get to church itself, try praying the divine office, of which we quoted from today in our little explanation of the nativity of St. John the Baptist. St. John, of course, was a man of the desert from the Holy Lands. He baptized Christ in the River Jordan. And speaking of the Holy Lands and Jordan, not so much the river, although it included that, I am leading a trip to the Holy Lands, to the lands where St. John the Baptist tread, and Christ himself did, of course, and all those great saints. This is going to go on Sunday to Wednesday, October 18th to the 28th of this year. We're going to go to the Holy Lands, it's called Encountering Christ and the Persecuted Christians of Iraq, a Holy Land pilgrimage with optional Jordan extension. Come with us on a 12-day journey in the Holy Land and Encountering Christ and the Persecuted Christians of Iraq. Meet our brothers and sisters who have suffered for their faith. They will move and inspire you, rejuvenate your faith, and strengthen your commitment to Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's Sunday through Wednesday, October 18th and the 28th of this year. For information, go to this website, selectinternationaltours.com, selectinternationaltours.com. I'm leading the tour, but also leading it along with a very good friend of ours here at Light of the East, Jeff Gardner, and he is with an effort called Picture Christians Project. You can find out about that by going to picturechristians.org, picturechristians.org. Jeff has captured the experience, the lived experience of these persecuted Christians with his camera. But he's done so in a special way. It's not just the gruesomeness of it, the physical gruesomeness of it, although that is very much a part of it. But it's also the psycho-spiritual gruesomeness of it. At the same time, behind those suffering eyes, you can see the flicker of deep faith. People who are truly living the faith, like St. John the Baptist himself, martyred for their faith, literally having their heads cut off being beheaded as St. John was for the faith. 
I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The best candidate for marriage is the very person who would be a good candidate for monasticism. And the best candidate for monasticism would be the very person who would be a good candidate for marriage. I'm Father Thomas J. Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Celibacy and marriage are not opposed to each other. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Marriage and celibacy are both choices to love, to make a gift of self, to live spousally. Happy marriages are those which have the element of the monastic in them, prayer, discipline, dying to self, and a sense of belonging ultimately to God. A celibate is happiest when he or she lives their celibacy spousally, making a gift of self to God and to others. The married couple reminds the celibate of the spousal dimension of his or her celibacy. The celibate reminds the married couple of the sacramental nature of their marriage. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host, as we begin officially summertime. Summertime, again, is part of the ordinary time of the liturgical calendar of the church, marked by the Sundays after Pentecost in the Eastern churches, but perforated, as I mentioned, by extraordinary events, like the birth, the nativity of St. John the Baptist. But with summertime also comes different types of behavior on the part of faithful worshipers. And as a pastor myself of nearly 33 years, it'll be 33 years coming up, actually, I am very sensitized to some of the behaviors, good and maybe not so good. (laughs) Some of those behaviors include sometimes lower attendance during summer because people are traveling and busy. We understand that. But at the same time, we still have to go to church. Why do we have to go? Because it's a rule, it's a law? No, because it's the honest thing to do. I mean, think about it. When you're on vacation, a lot of times we go to places that are beautiful, magnificent, and we should be beholding God. We should be ever more sensitized to God, and therefore we want to thank Him. In fact, part of the fun of going to church during vacation time is that you get to go to 
churches that are new to you. You know, they're not where your hometown is. You're usually out of town if you're traveling. So it's always interesting to experience other churches, pastors and the people and so on in other locations. We get visitors, of course, on my own parish. Most parishes do. But sometimes the attendance slips during summertime, and that's unfortunate. It's always a heartache to us pastors. We understand to an extent, but at the same time, we so wish that everyone would still respond to the glory that they're seeing, to the fun and the relaxation, the joy that they're experiencing during the summer months and vacation, to respond to that in the best way, the way that God himself designed. And that is by attending the divine office, in particular the Eucharistic liturgy. But there's something else that happens during the summer months, and that is the way that we dress. It becomes more casual. We want to be cool. And I'm oftentimes asked, Father Tom is a Byzantine Catholic priest. Is the style of dress that people use in church, especially in the summertime, and particularly among the young ladies, is that a problem in the Byzantine church? Because it seems to be in our church or our parish. And usually someone asking me that is not a Byzantine Catholic. They may be a Latin Rite Catholic or Protestant or whatever. And my answer to them is, well, it's a problem to an extent, perhaps not as much as in other churches, but still it is. And the reason why I say it's maybe not as much, but still is a problem. The reason why it's not maybe as much is it has to do with the liturgy itself and all that our liturgy is about, all that goes into it. In other words, when you come to most Byzantine churches, especially if they're properly done, the liturgy is done well, you have a rather profound sense of being in a very, very special place, a formal place, a holy place, a place that is different and special, and your tendency is to want to dress accordingly for the most part. However, even in the Eastern churches, despite all of our floor-to-ceiling icons and our incense and our chanting and our bowing and our asking forgiveness and our humility and our sense of the transcendence of God and all those wonderful things that we try to do to draw people into an experience of God. Despite all that, there's still the influence of the secular world. And yes, we do have people that dress in ways in which maybe they're comfortable during the summer months, but they're maybe not so appropriate or so modest. Now, most of the time, they don't realize it, especially the young ladies. In fact, sometimes very fine young ladies will dress in ways that are really not very modest. They're not trying to be immodest. They just don't understand. So, how do we respond to this? How do we help to teach people, especially our young ladies? Well, as always, the Eastern spirituality, which is what we're about here in this program, has something to offer. It's not just an historical study or a museum piece or just a focus of interest as far as another dimension of the church. Eastern spirituality is relevant. It is perennial. It's good for all times, as is Western spirituality. But there's something in particular that I think the Eastern spirituality has that can help our discernment in how to dress modestly, especially now during these warmer days of summer, and especially for the ladies. The first thing to realize, and we draw this from our liturgy, from the liturgical ethos and the vision of liturgy, is that nothing on earth that God has created is bad, is bad or immoral or immodest or dirty in itself. The human body is not that way. The human body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The human body is glorious, is beautiful, is holy, is sacred. We are made in the image and likeness of God. So the human body itself is never in itself an occasion for sin. It's not bad. It's how that body is presented and how it is perceived or received. It's a 
reciprocal kind of action. And this was something that St. John Paul II spoke a lot about in his brilliant teachings on the human person known as the theology of the body. They're very mystical, very liturgical, which is why I like them, (laughs) because they're very much in tune with the Eastern spirituality. So the first principle is the body's not bad. So we're not talking about the body being shameful or bad or dirty. What we're talking about is really a question of honesty, of appropriateness, of being consistent. We present our bodies according to the situation. If we're swimming on a beach, I don't expect someone to be dressed in an evening gown or, or a young lady to be dressed from her neck to her toes in a long, thick dress. I wouldn't expect that if she's going swimming or she's taking a, a walk in her backyard or in the park you know, on a, a nice summer day. She's having a picnic or something, she, or she's playing ball, playing soccer or softball or something, or volleyball at a picnic. Yes, there are appropriate ways to dress according to the occasion. So what is the occasion in church? The occasion in church is to present everything, to see everything as very holy, as very special, including ourselves. Now, I notice in the Eastern liturgies, we are very fond of veils, of covering things. And I'll tell you a funny story at this point. When I was a seminarian in Rome, Mixed in with Latin Rite seminarians, Eastern Rite seminarians, we had a lot of fun together. We used to rib each other, too. One day, the Eastern seminarians said to the Western seminarians, you know, you Western seminarians, you Latin Rite Catholics, you know, with your St. Thomas Aquinas and all that. Yeah, he's great and all that, but, you know, why do you always have to want to explain everything? You think you can explain every single thing with all your category and your scholasticism. See, to an Easterner, that was kind of befuddling. Well, the Latin Rite seminarian turned to us Eastern Rite seminarians and said to us, well, when you Easterners can't explain something, you throw a veil around it, blow smoke around it, and call it a mystery. (laughs) So he did speak a truth. We had a lot of fun ribbing each other during those days, but he did speak a truth. We do love veils, and we love blowing smoke around things. In other words, incense. We like to make things very mystical, very cloudy, kind of mysterious. And why do we do that? Because what we're covering is bad or shameful? No, actually, and this is part of the gem of the Eastern spirituality, drawing from our liturgy, it's because something is special. Think about it. The most formal occasions, you notice, during the most formal occasions, we tend to cover our bodies the most. Men wear tuxedos to weddings. The girls wear usually gowns that cover most of their body, although sometimes there's a problem with that nowadays. But basically, the style is long dress and a lot of coverage of the body. We do so on Pascha and Easter. You know, girls, especially ladies, will buy new dresses and and hats, the famous Easter bonnets and so on. We tend to cover ourselves according to the occasion. And if it's a special occasion, we tend to cover up even more. So we cover things, we veil things, especially in the Byzantine liturgy, because they are special and holy, not because they're bad and dirty. So what we're doing is we're making a statement about what's underneath the veil. We're saying that what's underneath the veil is very special and holy and sacred. And something that's holy and sacred is to be approached or revealed at the appropriate time by the appropriate person in the appropriate way and perceived or received in the appropriate way by others. See, that's the key to the veil. That's why at certain points in liturgy, when the chalice is veiled and the disco is holding the bread, when it's veiled, there's a point when it is unveiled, uncovered, but only at certain points. This is especially true during the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts, in which the consecrated host is, is present throughout most of the service. So the chalice and discos are veiled. 
but they are unveiled at certain points and only for certain reasons by a certain person to elicit a certain reaction. So when we talk about girls in church, we want to have their bodies covered. I'm not talking about an Islamic burqa, something like that, but talking about a basic principle. And I'm not going to talk in terms of inches in reference to women's dress. I'm not going to go there. But I'm going to offer the principle which I draw from Byzantine liturgy. It's a wonderful principle, actually, and it's right there in the liturgy itself. Think of that principle. We veil, we cover what is special, and we uncover only by a special person, for a special purpose, at a special time, to be received in a special way. So if the girls can think about that principle, remember, modesty does not mean that the body is shameful, bad, or dirty, but that it is special, and that we're in a special time, in a special place, And we want to be consistent or honest to that. Look around the church. Look at the icons. How are they dressed? How are the figures dressed there? Lots of robes, lots of mantles and veils and so on. Why? Because what's beneath those mantles and veils and robes is something special, not something shameful. So the Byzantine liturgy, the Eastern liturgies are relevant in the past, the present, the future, and always. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the radio button. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.